0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Today, on Truth of the Matter, we have with us Dr. Elliot Cohen, who is our Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS, of course, former dean at SAIS. Elliot, so great to have you here. And we have Dr. Seth Jones, who is the head of our international security program, senior vice president at CSIS, and Harold Brown chair. Seth, I want to lead off with you and then go to Elliot. I want to ask both of you for your assessment of where we are right now in Russia's war with Ukraine.
1: Thanks, Andrew. And it's great to be on with Elliot. Just to start off, if, if we look at the battlefield picture right now, we've got Russian forces Focused right now in the north on Kyiv predominantly and trying to encircle the city from multiple directions. We see Russian forces in the east around two main cities, Kharkiv and Izium, And then we see down in the south a uh, Russian attempts to advance north of Crimea in Kherson and areas around Mariupol. We've also seen uh, the targeting of uh, theater in Mariupol, Clearly a civilian target. I would just say the broader issue, though, is that the Russians are suffering pretty staggering losses right now uh, between about, according to U.S. government estimates, about six to 8,000 fatalities, which is larger than what the U.S. suffered in Afghanistan and Iraq combined in 20 years. That's in a two-and-a-half-week period, so really staggering losses, and they're suffering those losses from javelins, uh, close-range anti-tank guided munitions. They're suffering them from both helicopters shot down and aircraft from Stingers and and other surface to air missile systems. So really impressive action by the Ukrainians to uh, fight off this Russian invading force. Is it fair to say Russia is getting bogged down?
2: I would absolutely say so. They are bogged down. They're There's very little movement just to build on some of the things that uh, Seth was saying. If you lose uh, 7,000 fatalities, there's a ratio normally of wounded prisoners uh, missing in action. The the lowest number factor that you'd use would be about three. In the case of the United States, it's much higher because we have much better medical care, which means that the the Russians have probably taken something like 20,000 casualties, killed, wounded, missing in action, which means that more than 10% of their force was knocked out of action. That usually, again, just kind of a rule of thumb, renders you combat ineffective, or at least severely diminishes your ability to do things. When you add to that the fact that the Russians have made re- recently only really marginal gains on the ground, and you look, say, at the Washington Post meta, just a readout of the, the briefing from the Pentagon today, they don't see Russian reinforcements streaming in. They don't see uh, major resupply. They don't see major reorganization. You know, unless the Russians are being extraordinarily clever in masking this stuff from us, they're really hurting. There's a great piece in the Wall Street Journal today by Yaroslav Trofimov about a battle in just one village, which I'll probably mispronounce, uh, Vosnesensk. And it gives you a very vivid sense of the difficulty that this Russian force, not well trained, um, exclusively mechanized, not able to get off the roads, poorly supported with infantry, has against very determined Ukrainian resistance, armed with some pretty good weapons. So I would say, at the moment, the Russians are really actually in a very serious world of hurt. Now, the Ukrainians are also taking losses and so on. But I think it's, you know, there the issue is primarily the humanitarian issue of the, the terrible suffering of the Ukrainian people.
0: Elliot, did, did I, if I understand right, you think it's closer to 20,000 Russians who have been. You know, we, people use
2: the word casualties loosely. Uh-huh. So when the Pentagon talks about six to 8,000 casualties, they're talking fatalities. Okay. They, you know, normally, the way, as military historians would think about it, casualties are
1: dead and
0: wounded. So just taking people off the battlefield is the issue.
1: That's right. So so when I used the six to eight thousand, I was specific in fatalities, the dead Russian soldiers. But Elliot's exactly right. When you start including those injured, wounded that had been you know lost limbs because their main battle tank was blown up and they were able to get off, it was set, that those would be about a uh, increase that number by a factor of three. And you know. Wednesday night, Vladimir Putin
0: uh, gave a televised speech in which he seemed angrier than he was even before. Does this, in your view, either one of you, have to do with this getting bogged down and and Putin's initial belief that the Ukrainian people would not fight, that they would just lay down their arms and let this happen? I think it it has everything to do with it. Look, he went into this with a whole set of
2: expectations which were completely false. He expected to be greeted as liberators. The Russian army would be greeted as liberators in particularly the Russian-speaking parts of the country. The city of Kharkiv, which is the heart of the Russian-speaking area, has not fallen. I mean, they're getting ferocious resistance in Russian-speaking cities. I think he expected the Ukrainian military to fall apart. I expect, think he expected the Russian economy to be more sanctions-proof that it's turning out to be, and you know, there are signs that he's doing what dictators do in these circumstances. First, you take it out on your subordinates. So there's some senior FSB successor to the KGB officials who are under arrest. There are reports, I think, Seth, of eight generals having been sacked. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the defense minister and the chief of the general staff. And he is getting angrier and angrier. And part of the anger, I think, stems from what he thinks is at stake. And I think what he believes is at stake is first, there's his own survival because in Russian history an unsuccessful war means that the government's in in trouble. But I think it's quite clear that he, what he sees here is the possibility that Ukraine, which he believes is essentially an integral part of Russia will permanently slip away and permanently become part of the west and that's completely unacceptable and that's quite apart from the the democratic contagion fear that he also clearly has had and it must be maddening to him that president Zelensky, this 44 year old former comic you know no security background is being celebrated as a hero everywhere and is still standing despite a whole bunch of attempts to kill him, uh, it must really be driving him around the bend.
1: To, to add on to that, Andrew, what it looks like unambiguously is that Vladimir Putin completely overestimated the quality of his military. And it's not just the ground forces. Well, the ground forces didn't fight in Syria. It's been a while since the Chechen war. That was also inside of Russia itself, but overstated the effectiveness of his air forces as well and severely underestimated how the Ukrainians would respond. The quality of the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian local resistance is a colossal, a strategic intelligence failure by Vladimir Putin and whoever else in his senior leadership made the final decisions to go in. The other concerning issue though, is I think the challenges that the Russians are facing And Zelensky's discussions with policymakers across the West now has not just enraged, continues to enrage Vladimir Putin, but I think it's made him more likely to keep fighting. I think he'll be willing, frankly, to consider escalation. If you look at what Russia has suffered already, both with its fatalities and casualties, the economic impact of the sanctions, and then political isolation, The Russians are not playing in the most important and widely watched athletic event of the year, which is the FIFA World Cup soccer tournament. They've been excluded from it. You put all that together, I think the alternative of of a loss in Ukraine would be far too costly for Putin because that means he's done for. And so I, I think what is more likely in the foreseeable future is that Vladimir Putin escalates, tries to push in more forces if he can to escalate indiscriminate attacks. I think we're likely to see the Russians attempt to increase interdiction in the West. I think it raises a lot of questions if weapons continue to flow in from NATO countries that border Western Ukraine, whether at some point Putin authorizes a strike into one of those NATO countries, whether it's a, an overt strike Uh, Might be land attack cruise missiles, what were used uh, right along the Polish border recently, or it could be a sabotage operation. But I I think there is a there's certainly a risk of escalation and possibly expansion.
2: Yeah, I, I guess I would just add to that. I think the escalation will be the kinds of things that Seth has talked about, maybe use of chemical weapons, false flag attacks and so on. You know, my assessment of the Russian military, and I don't know if Seth and I have Slightly different views. I mean, Seth, you'll correct me. I mean, it's a terrible military. You know, they had all the advantages of position and initiative and presumably intelligence. I mean, their Air Force is terrible. You know, the fact that they weren't able to take down the Ukrainian air defenses, I mean, this is something the United States has done and thinks about doing. It's just incompetence. I mean, they have not been able to use air power in support of ground forces. You know from a combined arms' point of view they're awful and I think they do not have plausibly have other resources. you know the fact that they're trying to recruit Syrian mercenaries who, who will be just useless I think on the battlefield or bring in these Chechen uh, militias and so on it tells you there are no more forces out there if they bring in reservists, those reservists are not like the National Guard or the Finnish reserves or the Israeli reserves. these guys don't train I mean they haven't they haven't done anything. So I think what he would have to do if he's going to escalate would be, you know, things that are different in kind. So things like those land attack cruise missiles uh, lobbed uh, near the Polish border, maybe over the Polish border next time, chemicals, things like that. I just, I just don't think he has a couple of combined arms armies that he's waiting to send into the fray. I, I just don't think they exist. So, Seth, would you disagree with that?
1: What I might disagree with a little bit is whether he would still be willing to push in additional forces and to conduct even more of a scorched earth campaign. I I agree that his forces, air, ground, and even naval have performed poorly. That doesn't necessarily mean he won't push in additional forces and certainly, and I agree with you here, escalate in terms of striking targets, attempting to interdict in Western Ukraine, potentially also in nearby countries like Poland, where most of the supplies are coming in. I mean, I think it's worth noting that this week, President Biden announces 800 million in new military aid, 800 edition Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. They're going to shoot down those aircraft, 9,000 additional anti-tank weapons that will target those main battle tanks, armored personnel carriers, tactical drones that will also have a kamikaze capability. They'll have explosive laden that can also strike targets, machine guns grenade launchers. I mean, these are all likely to continue to bleed the Russians in Ukraine and probably continue to raise that anger level of, uh, of Vladimir Putin.
0: And then, so does that make him more likely to use a weapon of mass destruction, like a chemical weapon, or dare I even say it, nuclear? I think you really have to
2: distinguish between chemical and nuclear. They've used chemicals before. A chemical weapon is actually not a weapon of mass destruction. And I mean, in terms of the number of people you're actually going to kill. But but it is a very significant escalation. And I think, by the way, it would be one of a number of points at which the likelihood of Western and specifically American direct intervention goes up. I think if we see chemicals used, particularly against a Ukrainian city, the pressure here to for the United States Air Force to go in and put a stop to that will be overwhelming. Nuclear weapons would be different. I mean, one of the things I found very distressing watching the administration handle it after a very good start in the run-up to the crisis and in the diplomacy is, you know, this wringing of hands about escalation. Truth is, the Russians do not want to blow themselves up either. They do not want to get into a nuclear confrontation. If Putin has convinced himself that we will flinch, I can imagine him lighting off a tactical nuclear weapon. Again, I'm curious to know what uh, my friend Seth thinks about that.
1: I agree with your broader assessment, Elliot, on the uh, use of chemical weapons. They've been used to some, I mean, they're obviously illegal under the Geneva Convention. They were used by the Russian allies, the Syrians, in the, in the Syrian civil war. They were used in multiple locations, Khan al-Assad, Jabbar, Sarakib, Duma, the Russians used sarin, they used chlorine, they used sulfur mustard. And there is a a rationale for using them, which is they clear people out of neighborhoods very quickly. So if one of the issues that the Russians want to increasingly do in Ukrainian cities that they they want to clear of uh, civilians, uh, civilians By the way, which the Russians essentially now view as enemy combatants, because in a way, the entire population of Ukraine, or much of it, is fighting against the Russian army. So chemical weapons, what they'll do is they will clear neighborhoods and parts of cities out. And so I think in that sense, if that is the military calculation, then I think they could very well be used. Just to add on, I think it, it'll be helpful to get to a point where US policymakers really stop talking about what they're not going to do and start talking and identifying some strategic end goals on what they are going to do. And as the as the situation in Ukraine continues to deteriorate and if the humanitarian situation does get worse, that is going to raise a lot of questions about humanitarian assistance efforts. And if, if we continue to see hospitals targeted, aid convoys targeted, to what degree and what and when will the U.S. and other NATO countries provide, say, overflight assistance to those aid convoys? That would require combat aircraft, for example. And, you know, those, those are really tough decisions in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ongoing war where, you know, one of the U.S.'s most significant enemies, the, the Russians, are there. But we are getting inching closer to where that decision will have to be made soon.
0: Well, and as we sit here and watch the destruction of beautiful cities like Kharkiv and the suffering of civilians and the, the, the civilian casualties we see, you know, how much more can the Ukrainian people take of this? So, you know, history would say that
2: this is an extraordinarily tough people. They endured Stalin's famine. I mean, they've endured occupation and violence for a very, very long time. You know, the piece of history that people need to remember is through the early 50s, there were Ukrainian guerrillas fighting the Russians after World War II. I think it is clear that that country has been unified by this, in a a quite extraordinary way i mean at, at the end of this horrible story the ukraine that will emerge is a very different ukraine than the ukraine of february 23rd 2022 it'll be a country that's been welded together it'll have its heroes it'll have its martyrs and it will be fierce and i think they're fierce now and that's why You know, we really should be completely wholehearted in giving them everything they need to conduct this fight. They are perfectly
0: willing to do that. And and as they've shown themselves, quite capable, too. Seth, I, I want to go back to you on another point here. Yesterday, we had a pretty extraordinary event at CSIS. We had four former Supreme Allied commanders with us, General Jones, General Ralston, General Clark, and General Breedlove. And they all suggested very strongly that the United States needs to do more. What more can the United States do and what more should it do? And Elliot, I want to ask you that question also. I know you've written on it and we've talked about it
1: on this podcast, but what more can we do right now? I mean, for starters, I think it would be extremely helpful to outline what our end state looks like and then what kind of steps, military, diplomatic and otherwise, we need to get there. It's not clear what the U.S. is actually willing to accept in Ukraine. And at the end of the day, I think it is important to recognize that we have to support the Ukrainians here in uh, any negotiation they have with the Russian government. I certainly think that the uh, uh, U.S. needs to continue to conduct sustained resupply to uh, Ukrainians and to continue to provide The kinds of assistance we're now starting to see, that is high-tech weapons like anti-aircraft missiles, surface-to-air missiles, anti-tank weapons, drones, intelligence, small arms, machine guns, grenade launchers, and then other types of non-military material. What's important here is if this is anything like what the Russians have fought in Syria and Chechnya, two of the most recent wars they've been involved in, this has the potential if they decide if the russians continue to decide to to fight even if they pull out a chunk of their conventional forces and provide assistance to russian backed irregulars is that this has the potential to continue for months if not years the syrian war dragged on about 5 or 6 years until the russians essentially won that one with the syrian regime the Chechen war was over a decade. So I think the issue is, is sustaining resistance against, uh, against a, a really underperforming Russian military. And then I think on the humanitarian side, I do think there needs to be a very serious strategic down to a tactical level discussion on how might the West, including the US, be willing to at least start off by providing overflight access and protection to humanitarian assistance efforts on the ground. Purely humanitarian in nature, what would that entail? Where would those areas be? What would happen if those uh, aircraft, for example, were targeted? But I, I think a serious strategic to tactical level military planning effort needs to go into thinking about what are the costs and benefits. That's what the four Supreme Allied commanders yesterday all supported was actually the use of NATO aircraft to provide humanitarian assistance. And the general argument from all of them was, look, at the end of the day, if the Ukrainian government invites outsiders in, it is not Russian airspace. Obviously, we're getting into a delicate situation there, but I think those issues need to be very carefully thought through now.
2: So what I would say is that there's a, a material dimension and a policy dimension. So on the material side, I'm glad we're kicking in an additional $800 million. But my gut tells me that we've, we're thinking about an order of magnitude too small, that what we should be saying is $10 billion, 20, whatever it takes, we, as long as there's a single Ukrainian fighting, we're going to make sure that they're fully equipped. And, uh, you know, we should be doing things like saying, OK, we're going to ramp up production of javelins. We'll pay the money so that those production lines are going 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's not just one billion, but, you know, there'll be, there will be as much coming in as they can possibly process. And I don't have a feeling that, that's, that we're yet there. I think the second big thing is, first, we should stop talking about our fear of escalation. We should top, stop talking about, well, they're not in NATO. And we should begin signaling, all, everything is on the table for us to do, depending on how the Russians behave. So you really would need a, just a massive psychological shift here. And that, I think, is going to be a difficult thing for this particular administration to do. And the president boxed himself in a corner a bit with some things he said. The Secretary of Defense has been completely AWOL on this. You do not see him talking about Russian military performance. You don't see him talking about American military power. You don't see him talking about the strength of NATO. I mean, He needs to be a public figure and he needs to be projecting the, the fact, which is actually we have an enormous amount of military strength we can bear, bring to bear should we choose to do so. And it's just, it is shocking to me, the extent to which the Secretary of Defense is silent.
0: It was extraordinary. I mean, the other day, Biden appeared with Tony Blinken on one side of him and our former colleague, Kath Hicks, who's the deputy secretary
1: behind him. And, and I thought that was really striking. I think the reality is this administration is in a war right now. Whether you like it or not, the reality is that the United States is directly supporting a country, Ukraine, which has engaged in active combat with one of the United States's most significant adversaries, the Russian Federation. We are a participant indirectly in that war and it does now risk escalation. And we need to be prepared uh, politically, militarily, economically with whatever happens next. We are in the right on this particular conflict. It was the Russians that invaded a democratic country of Ukraine. We did not start this fight. There is a lot at stake. And I think Elliot is exactly right. We actually should be speaking and acting from a position of strength right now because we have it. And we have we have allies across NATO. And we have allies that are non-NATO countries, including Sweden and Finland, that have been very supportive of our actions. So we need to to then operate with that strength in mind and stop. Talking about what we can't do, and start to talk about what we can do.
2: It's also, you know, just to add one more thing. I completely agree with what Seth said. You know, this is a watershed event. This isn't just a crisis that blew up that you can try to contain or resolve, and then you move on. You move back to your domestic agenda and how you were doing things. This changes things. I mean, this is this is marking the end, I believe, of the post-war era. I mean, going forward. We're in a different place. There are things happening, you know, in what's really in some ways the heart of Europe that we never thought we would see again. I, I was reminded by a friend of mine. We did a staff ride to on the, uh, the invasion of Sicily in 1943. And uh, it was Tom Ricks, well-known journalist, turned to a, a friend of mine and he said, do you think we'll ever do anything like this again? We'll ever see this kind of war again. He said, nah. No. Well, we're seeing it again. You know, we're seeing an independent country of over 40 million people being slashed to ribbons by a brutal dictator. It's, it feels surreal, but it's the world that we're in.
0: Dr. Elliot Cohen, Dr. Seth Jones, thank you for this really sobering discussion. Really appreciate your insights. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts.